You're listening to Social Science Fiction, a podcast that blends political science and nerd culture, examining the politics of science fiction and fantasy. Okay, so today we are talking Lord of the Rings. And to talk about Lord of the Rings, I have a very special guest on today, someone who I have known for most of my life and all of his, my brother Adam. Thank you so much for being here today. Pleasure to be here. So when I started doing this podcast, you reminded me about when we used to have these discussions about Lord of the Rings when we were kids, and you suggested I do this for the show, and I figured if I'm going to talk about Lord of the Rings and cover this topic, I really have to have you on to join me. So that's why I'm having you here today. And the topic is, how does the Lord of the Rings fit into World War II history? Can we read Lord of the Rings as sort of World War II allegory? And if so, who are all the factions? What does everybody represent? Yeah, absolutely. That was definitely always a discussion that we used to have. I forget that that game that we used to play with the little miniatures. It had like a dial base. I, I think, oh, that that was uh, Mage Knights. That was, Mage Knights? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah, we used to play, it, it wasn't Lord of the Rings, but it was a very Lord of the Rings inspired type thing. Yeah, we played that a lot when we were kids. Yeah, it was like that, Led Zeppelin in the background, incense burning. <laughs> the only things that were missing were weed and alcohol. But Right, yeah. It, it had was, a very, we yeah, had a den going. It was, yeah, it was a, it was a very nerdy th- thing we did. Yeah, just that and, and arguing about Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that was, that was fun. Those were good, those were good times. Yeah. So, when was, when's the last time you read or watched the movies? Probably earlier this year, actually. A lot of spare time and quarantine, so... Yeah, was this this what you went back to for quarantine? Yeah, yeah, this was one of the things I went back to. Just a lot of old things. Started watching the animated movies again too. Oh, you were t- you were telling me about that before before we started. I haven't seen those in years, but I'm sure some people who are listening. Their eyes lit up when they heard that because those were arguably as good in their own way as the Peter Jackson movies. Very wholesome and family friendly. No one died in those ones. They all just sort well, of fell into. Well, they they die they die in the, in the Hobbit one. I'm pretty sure they just fall. No, I I only remember they die off screen. We don't see anyone die on screen, but I remember in the Hobbit, Gandalf, like at the end when he's talking to Bilbo, he's like, "Oh yeah, this dwarf and that dwarf died." In fact, the Hobbit it's even more brutal because I think in the Hobbit in the book originally I think it's only Philly and Killy, like the youngest ones, who die. Whereas in the cartoon, for some reason, they had a whole bunch more of them die, like for no reason. Yeah, it was Feely Keely, but I mean, I think, yeah. Gandalf and Thorin, of course. And Thorin, obviously, but yeah, Gandalf just sort of rattling off names in the cartoon. I was like, oh, for the love of God, when are you going to stop? Like, we're not reading the credits at the end, Gandalf. Yeah, that was depressing. And again, for no reason. Like, But but yeah, you're right. It, it, the, the cartoon in general, yeah, we don't see the people die on screen, at least. And that's... Yeah, that's those were so much fun. Oh yeah, I mean it was one of those things where whenever you saw psychedelic colors and flashing strobe lights, you know someone died. But <laughs> it was oh yeah, those cartoons were were definitely of an era. It was all very weird colors and flashing lights. Yep. Yep. The Timothy Leary days. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. So so the point is, you are uh, you you do have this stuff fresh in your memory. Yes, my pronunciations, the names, all that Those stuff. Those are going to be off. Just 
way off, but I could tell you, you know, some elven king fought a Belrog and they both died. That's pretty much whenever an elf meets a Belrog, they both die. But yeah, the names couldn't tell you. They'll like yeah. me. So let's get into it. Let's talk who is everybody in Lord of the Rings relation to World War II. And I should say, going in, aware Tolkien probably wouldn't approve of this. Tolkien himself said Lord of the Rings isn't supposed to be allegory. He said he, did, he didn't like allegory in general. Exactly. But for S's and G's, you know, it's always fun to try to make those comparisons. Yeah, so this is just for fun. We, rec we recognize this is not actually World War II allegory. Tolkien did not intend it that way. He didn't like allegory in general. He liked the idea that a book can be reinterpreted in different ages and to mean different things. He thought it was too confining for it to mean one thing. But still, this is just for fun. So... I, I forget where we landed on this when we were kids. I mean, so if we're if we're talking the different factions, we have to cover the the, the major Allied powers, right? United States, United Kingdom, Soviet Union. Soviet Union. Maybe France. I mean, yeah. yeah I mean, uh, France is always one of those tricky ones because they did have an act in the war. You know, the French resistance was strong, and you know, Charles de Gaulle and a lot of French over in England at the time were doing everything they could, but, you know, they, did, they, they made one bad mistake. They lined everything up on the Maginot line. They, they made an oopsie, but, <laughs> yeah, sure, let's, let's throw them into the mix. Why not? They can be, yeah. they can be fatty. Fatty vulture. Fatty vulture. Fatty vulture. Why not? They're just there. They're a body. Well, to... I, well, I'm, I, I'm not just thinking. I, I mean, I'm also thinking about Vichy France. I mean, the Nazis take over, and then France does act as sort of a puppet government. So we can maybe find a faction, the Lord of the Rings, that is kind of a puppet of Sauron or Saruman. But okay, putting aside them for now, it seems like the, the major allies we have to figure out are U.S., U.K., Soviet Union, and then Axis powers, Germany, Worm Japan. Time. Worm time. Because, you know, he was a good guy. He was for Rohan. Then he got corrupted. He got set up as like kind of like a puppet, pulled the strings of Saruman. And then at the very end, when he realized all was lost, he was like, hey, look, I'm back, and stabs him in the so, back. Kind of regains well, himself. So Worm time represents all of France. You know, I'm never going there anytime soon, so sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Putting aside, aside France for a second. Germany, Japan. Maybe Italy? I feel like we always left Italy out when we talked about this in the past, because they get lost in, in the mix. Yeah, Italy just... Uh, Italy is one of those... I mean, yes, they were part of the Axis power, but at the end of the day, I feel like Mussolini just threw his hat in the ring to try to like regain the Roman Empire, which wasn't going to happen, but... He was just trying to relive the glory days, make Italy great again, and just it, it didn't end well. So See, I mean, yeah, let's talk. Uh, I, I I feel like I feel like Saruman goes out like Mussolini, kind of you know, kind of uh, really humiliating loss, killed by his own people. Yeah. Well, see that uh, we could say that, but then at the same time, that just sets up that kind of goes against everyone that I'm listing for the allies right right this is this is the problem you, you try to fit someone in somewhere and then throw something else up okay sticking with the, the the major powers everybody thinks of and this is not to insult any of the other powers they they played their role but we the can ones work them in yeah the, the, the ones we're thinking of us uk soviet union germany japan yeah. who is everybody so i guess i'll start with the allies i always saw the ents were america they were the ones who stayed out of the war as long as possible. They didn't want to enter it. They provided assistance in some regards, but once they realized what Saruman was doing to Fangorn Forest, it was sort of equivalent of Pearl Harbor, and it really was a wake-up call to make them kind of snap back into it and finally enter the war. Yeah, so that makes sense. 
And I think that this is something we usually came back to in the past when we talked about this. You have the literal sleeping giants. Right. And, yeah, they're staying out of it until, until something shocking snaps them out of it, and then they enter the war and kind of help turn the tide. Of course, the problem there is the ends play no role, really, in the war against Sauron. And it also set, establishes that Saruman is definitely Japan, and Sauron is definitely Germany, which makes sense. We consider Sauron the ultimate evil. Germany definitely gets that distinction in World War II. But then Saruman gets defeated first, and Japan is the last Axis power to fall. I mean, if you want to go chronologically, yeah. That... <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, putting, putting that aside, okay. but So, I mean, if we follow that logic, it's the answer of the U.S., Saruman is Japan, Sauron is Germany. Who is everybody else? So in kind of in keeping with the ends being America and Saruman being Japan, I always saw Rohan as Russia. They were a powerful force, but they were very rustic, very much so kind of... Like when you look at Rohan versus Gondor, Gondor has their castles and their history and like... They seem much more culturally... I don't want to say pompous, but... <laughs> <laughs> For lack of a better word, when I think of old England, you know, aristocracy, monarchy, I think of Gondor. With Minas Tirith, you know, that seems very UK to me. They're the ones kind of getting hammered by Sauron constantly. They're being drawn back, drawn back. Meanwhile, you have Rohan, which really isn't... Yes, they are fighting Sauron, but they're going up against Saruman as well. They kind of have to fight both sides of it. That makes sense. It, all, it also fits with the idea of one of the big concerns of Gandalf, the White Council, all kind of the, the good guys in Lord of the Rings is how do we get Rohan to enter the war and stay in the war? Like, that's the concern. They, they want to stay out of it for a while. And then even once they're in, it's, okay, are they going to be committed to this? Are they going to continue to make sacrifices? And that's sort of the role the Soviet Union does play in, in the war. They at first try to stay out of it. We're just going to make a, you know, Stalin and Hitler have their own separate peace agreement. Right. And then it's, okay, what can we do to keep the Soviet Union in this war? Because we know if the Soviet Union leaves, then, then we're in trouble because now Hitler can focus all his attention on the Western Front. Right, exactly. And it's kind of, yeah, like you were saying, it's we won't give an inch, but we won't take an inch. And it's not until they actually determine, okay, this is a significant threat that we need to get into that's when they really start to enter the war and it wasn't until the ends finished off Saruman that they were actually also able to throw their weight with Gondor and fight Sauron right. which again chronologically doesn't doesn't fit for world world war Two, but yeah the, but just the general idea that Rohan represents the great power that is concerned with both Sauron and Saruman that's same thing Soviet Union being between Japan and Germany they do have a fight with both right. although again in in real history it's Germany that gets knocked out first but yeah that that fits the basic idea and then yeah I like Gondor being Great Britain they're they're the ones that are kind of holding the line against against Sauron and just trying to just holding out until other allies come and help them at the end all of that fits. That still leaves the Shire. What are the what are the hobbits? Because they play the, the the ultimate role in this whole thing. I'm thinking like the, the 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 hobbits can also sort of represent the United States in a weird way. They're also a power that tries to stay out of the conflict and then ends no, up saving no. the day in the end. No, 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 no. See, here's the thing, Steve. When we used to have these conversations, I was very naive, very optimistic, but I've grown over the years, and you know, I've I've grown much more cynical. And I honestly think that the hobbits. They're France. 
Because prior to the war, during the war, up until everything, up until it was on their doorstep, what were they doing? Eating cheese, <laughs> drinking wine, smoking, just, you know, living a, a bohemian lifestyle, just not a care in the world. Then all of a sudden, they're upended. They have to go into other people's turf. They have to go into Rohan. They have to go into Brie. They have to go into all these other places. Much like the French were forced to go into other people's countries while they were hiding out. And then, they finally get the ring. They have the source of power. <laughs> but can Frodo and Sam and Mary Pippin just walk over to the... No, they have to get all these other countries to band together and escort them to the mountain. Yes, they carry it over the final leg. But, I mean, the hobbits are essentially Charles de Gaulle just hanging out in England for half of the war and then coming back like, look at this, I liberated the country. That's... Eh, well, they do save the day in the end. I mean, they were there. <laughs> yeah, half of that party wanted to keep the ring and run away. It took Gollum to save the day. Gollum saved the day more than the hobbits did. All right, well, if we want to, if we want to get technical, it's Eru Iluvatar saves the day, right? He's the one that apparently makes Gollum trip at the, at the very end. I didn't read the books, so oh, I have no idea what you're oh, talking about. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, so you didn't, you didn't read the, Sil the Silmarillion or, or anything. In the larger Tolkien universe, the larger L Lord of the Rings lore, there is a deity called Eru Iluvatar who created the world, well, he created the world with the help of the Ainur, his, like, angel-type figures. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of hinted that at the end, as Gollum is dancing, you know, yay, I got the ring back. It's divine intervention that makes Gollum slip and fall, and finally, that's what ends it. I feel like the TDs of Middle-earth and the Eagles, they really like to play fast and loose with the when we help, when we don't help. No, 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 we can't interfere. That would be too much. We can't interfere with the affairs of mortals. But let me just trip this guy and throw him into a volcano. Let me just hurl him into well, some lava. Well, this this is this is going to go completely off topic from the the political stuff and talking more uh, Tolkien's religious beliefs. But there is an explanation for this. This is like Tolkien's view of God. The Lord of the Rings is a, it's a very Christian book, and it reflects Tolkien's theology, his view of God as as a being that intervenes very little in the lives of mortals. Similar to his friend C.S. Lewis, who Tolkien actually converted. Similar to C.S. Lewis, who wrote all about why do people suffer when there's a loving, all-powerful God, and C.S. Lewis's explanation, well, we have free will. God doesn't believe in interfering in our lives. You know, a loving God will give us the freedom to, to live as we choose and make mistakes, and that means bad things will happen sometimes. It's Tolkien pushing that same idea in The Lord of the Rings and the larger Silmarillion. You know, a loving God will intervene very little in people's lives, and this is why bad things happen because he gives people the freedom to choose ultimately it's evil characters that actually want to shape the world it's evil characters that want to have power over others and so a mark of good is not wanting to interfere unless it's absolutely necessary you seem unconvinced i am i'm just uh, trying to word it without going on to a rambling rant right now no no that's half what the show is about go ahead <clears throat> i mean it just it just doesn't make any sense to me i'm not going to interfere except at the very end, at this very critical juncture. Like, how much suffering and pain and everything could have just been spared if he did that to Isildur? Why couldn't he trip Isildur hundreds and hundreds of years ago before that? Why does he have to go Gollum? Fair enough, but my interpretation of that was always that it was always kind of a reward 
for the noble things individuals did up to that point. Isildur being there, Isildur just fails the test entirely. They've won this great battle, they defeated Sauron, all he has to do is chuck the ring in, and that's it, it's over, and he fails that test, well, you're gonna suffer for it. While everything that led up to the moment of Frodo, Sam, and Gollum, so many people had to make noble, good decisions to get to that point. Bilbo had to spare Gollum's life, Frodo and Sam had to spare Gollum's life over and over again, and Sam and Frodo had to make so many sacrifices along the way to get to the point where they're standing at Mount Doom prepared to throw the ring in. And so just the fact that all three of them are there is a result of all the noble things they did to get there. So once you reach that point, you get a little help along the way. That was always my interpretation, that that extra help at the end is their reward for setting that up. If they had been evil and killed Gollum months ago, then Gollum would have been there for that to happen. And then Frodo probably would have succumbed at the end. Sauron gets the ring back and then everything is bad. But because they had spared Gollum, the kind of reward for their noble behavior is they get that help. I see what you're saying. But the way I look at it is if I'm running a marathon, I don't want someone showing up when I'm six feet away from the finish line with a golf cart being like, oh, hey, let me give you a lift the rest of the way. Like, that was just too little too late. Okay, all right. Getting back onto the actual topic. We have Gondor, UK, Rohan, Soviet Union, Sauron, Germany, Saruman, Japan, and United States. Now, again, it just bothers me that the ends don't play a role in defeating Sauron. Could we could we switch it up and make Rohan the United States? Because if Rohan's the United States, similar idea, they're trying to stay out of the war, and then actions by Sar Saruman pull them into the war. They save the day kind of at the end by coming to Gondor's aid. Can we switch it up and make them United States? Well, who would be Russia then? Well, that's the next question. If, if, if we change it up in Rohan's the United States, who would be the Soviet Union in that scenario? I mean, it goes against the idea of like the big burly kind of Russian, but you can make the argument that the hobbits were the Russians. Because, you know, they just, they did, the group did split up. Half of them went and dealt with Saruman. The other half continued to Sauron. They were the first ones to Mount Doom, just like the Russians were the first into uh, Berlin. Uh, the race to Berlin. The race uh. to Berlin. So, like, I mean, you could make the argument that the hobbits were, but... That's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I, I imagine the the average Soviet would be offended by being compared to hobbits. But yeah, that kind of that, that kind of works. I mean, what doesn't offend the average? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's plausible. And I I also start thinking about now. They they didn't cover this in the movies, did they? The whole scouring of the Shire when like the bad guys take over the Shire at the very end of the you never no, got into that, right? No. Oh, well, I mean, doesn't I mean in the books Saruman doesn't die at the top of the hill, right? He, he right. goes to the Shire and he takes control of the Shire for a while. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know too much about that apart from well, what that's, I just that's, said. Well, that's, that's pretty much it. Like, at the end of the events kind of depicted in two towers where Gandalf shows up and, oh, Saruman, you're, the, you're a bad guy now. I'm breaking your staff and taking your power and you're cast out of the White Council. In the movies, yeah, it's, it's weird. He gets stabbed in the back and falls and dies on that weird fucking spike wheel that served no purpose but to be a cool death scene for Saruman. Yeah, but, but that, that's the movie in the book. It's all of that except Saruman says like, oh, okay, oh, I'm mad at you, Gandalf, but I'm not coming out of my tower. And then they all just leave. And it's like, they leave the Ents there. Like, yeah, keep an eye on him. 
and then like off screen he talks the ends into letting him go and he just yeah. he does he doesn't have his powers anymore well he doesn't have his staff so he doesn't have most of his power but he still has that weird voice thing He's where he can like sort of and devil yeah he can like yeah basically he can just kind of weirdly charm people with his voice he's just a creepy old old man like wandering around talking people into doing things for him but yeah he he escapes and while the rest of the while everybody else on Middle Earth is dealing with fighting Sauron, he just wanders over to the Shire and like tricks half the hobbits into making him their leader and then just turns the Shire into a horrible place like he starts industrializing it. Like that's the that's the big thing I remember taking away from this episode in the books. It's all about Tolkien being a very old, conservative, naturalist, you know, the old agrarian days were best and industrialization is a bad thing. That's the core message of of this episode. It's just Saruman shows up in the Shire and just I bring you industry and technology and progress and it destroys the Hobbits society. And then they the then Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin come back and they lead a rebellion and that's when he gets stabbed in the back by Wormtongue or I think he slits his throat but either way that's when Worm- Wormtongue kills him at the very end when he's when the game is up there yeah so I know you know this but I do love the story where um, Sir Christopher Lee R.I.P. Peter Jackson was directing him for that last scene where he gets stabbed and he's like all right let me try just try to picture what a guy getting stabbed in the back would sound like and Christopher Lee just stops him and goes I know what that sounds like. Because <laughs> apparently it was just 007 during World War II, like, like top secret, stuff like that. So like, I, I, I know. <laughs> That's great. I know I've heard that before, but I have completely forgotten that story. And, and yeah, that, that is good. Yeah, or like he was talking to a reporter, reporters just trying to like pry some sort of information out of the missions he used to run during World War II. And he was like, he pulls him in close and is like, can you keep a secret? Oh, yeah, yeah. So can I. <laughs> Oh, what a great, what a great guy! <laughs> who would the hobbits be if we're signing out all the different nations? Who would the hobbits be? And if Rohan was America, I don't. You see, it's just the reason why I think of the ends are America is because they took out Saruman with one huge move. They released the dam. They basically flooded out Isengard and just kind of put an end to that. Kind of like the atomic bombs. Well, it's interesting you bring that up. If we're going to bring nuclear weapons into it, doesn't the ring have to be nuclear power? That's the horribly destructive thing that everybody's interested in. Yes, that's the thing everyone's interested in, but is it used to its effect? Is it... Well, the ring ultimately does bring about the destruction of Sauron. The ring goes in the flames of Mount Doom, and it's sort of everything blows up. But is Sauron Germany or Japan? Well, again, this would have to make no, this, this would have this would have to make uh, Sauron Japan. See exactly. So if Sauron is Germany, then the ring could be more so a symbol of freedom and liberty and but, hope. But the ring is the exact opposite of all those things. When used by evil, I, I'm still look. I, I'm still arguing. I think you can make a case that we have to switch the axis powers, make Sauron Japan. Again, it worked chronologically. He's defeated second. It would make the ring the nuclear bomb. Then Rohan can't be the United States, though, because they're... Um, so I realize it doesn't It doesn't all fit together. Yeah, it kind of... It all falls apart. See, and, and that's why it's not an allegory to 
the World's War II. Yeah. Well, since you bring up the the ring and or I brought up the ring, but you bring up nuclear weapons and so on, I was actually curious, and I I looked this up before we sat down to record this because I remember Tolkien had said something about this once, and I found a good quote from him where he says, "Yeah, I didn't mean this to be allegory," but he talks about kind of what if it was, and I'll I'll just read read the whole thing in full because I think this is interesting. This is like Tolkien basically playing the same game we we're playing. Like if it was, you know, World War II, how would it fit? What he said apparently was. The real war does not resemble the legendary war in its process or its conclusion. If it had inspired or directed the development of the legend, then certainly the ring would have been seized and used against Sauron. He would not have been annihilated but enslaved, and Beradur would not have been destroyed but occupied. Saruman, failing to get possession of the ring, would in the confusion and treacheries of the time have found in Mordor the missing links in his own researches into ring lore, and before long, he would have made a great ring of his own with which to challenge the self-styled ruler of Middle-earth. In that conflict, both sides would have held hobbits in hatred and contempt. They would not have survived, even as slaves. So that's Tolkien saying, like, yeah, if I did decide to rewrite this story to make it fit with World War II in the history that came after, have to acknowledge that none of the Axis powers were destroyed, they were occupied, and definitely implying that the ring is a nuclear bomb saying that the ring would have been used and then saying others would have acquired that technology, right? But this is interesting because he's saying if I redid this today, like to be World War II allegory, Saruman would have figured out the ring and made his own. And that seems to imply he's thinking Soviet Union, how the Soviet Union figured out their own bomb after the United States, did, which makes Saruman the Soviet Union, which totally doesn't fit with everything else. But I wonder if that's just Tolkien say, just saying, like, you know, none of this would all fit together. But if I was going to be writing it, by, it while being inspired by World War II and the subsequent Cold War, I would have made it much darker and just more everybody has a ring. Everybody's going to kind of be fighting right. each other. Well, that makes sense because World War II wasn't like obviously Lord of the Rings where you can't just completely annihilate an entire group. Just how we occupied the Allied powers, <laughs> occupied Germany, I wasn't there. Um, <laughs> but they weren't annihilated. Same thing with Japan. It wasn't just a complete obliteration of... Their, I, but at the same time, were orcs? Didn't orcs continue to live on Middle Earth even afterwards? Yeah, so in... I mean, this is something that I think Tolkien played around with and, and changed over time. In when he wrote The Hobbit, and he wrote The Hobbit before he planned on writing The Lord of the Rings and tying this into his larger mythology he was creating, he originally intended The Hobbit to be just its own standalone story. And so that's why some things don't always fit, and he had to kind of rework the canon and the lore a little bit. But in The Hobbit, he implies at least implies i think he maybe just outright says that like orcs or he calls them i think he just exclusively calls them goblins in the hobbit goblins live would live on and they're the ones that end up inventing a lot of the horrible industrial weapons that human beings would end up using like he implies that orcs or goblins are the ones that came up with like gunpowder and bombs and stuff that's his own mythology and i suppose that so he did that in the hobbit and before he related to the lord of the rings but yes i think it is definitely implied that orcs and hobbits and dwarves do continue to exist beyond the events of lord of the rings the elves disappear but everybody else continues to exist and yeah i think ultimately again uh, tolkien didn't like allegory he didn't want everything to represent one thing but i think just in terms of the tone in terms of themes in a larger sense the orcs were always supposed to just represent our most dark impulses orcs are all of us and i think there's another good quote about how you know there's not always good guys and bad guys in world war one we were all the orcs 
Just there was no good guy in World War One. World War Two was a little more, it was a little easier to pinpoint the good guys and the bad guys. But in general, I think the Tolkien view is just we're, we're all orcs and we wish we could be hobbits. Which you apparently don't agree with because you seem to have a hold the, the hobbits in very low esteem. I mean, yes. <laughs> yes. Like in this, in this day and age, I, I, I don't know, especially right now, just no shirt, no mask, no shoes, no service in my mind. Like, <laughs> like do you take those hairy little feet and keep on walking down the road? They're, they're, they're not the most sanitary creatures. No, I, I can only imagine the ringword problems that they have to go through. <laughs> You know, actually, as we're talking about this, we talked about hobbits and, the, and these other fantastical creatures. What about the dwarves? Where are the dwarves factor into all of this? Oh, yeah, the dwarves. They, they really See, don't. They don't play a role in the books themselves. And if you read the, uh, the, uh, the Silmarillion and expanded stuff, you know they were there. They had kingdoms. They were concerned about Sauron. But, yeah, they don't play a big role in the War of the Ring proper. Yeah, I mean, weren't they kind of like... I mean, no offense to redheads, but weren't they, like, the redheaded stepchilds of, like, all the creations? In the sense of, like, the elves were the prize and stuff like that, but I forget which deity was the blacksmith. I, I know who you mean, and I, and I can't remember. I'm not enough of a Tolkien nerd to be able to come up with that off the top of my head. I'll try to remember to insert this into the show notes when I, if I look it up. But yes, like, the, the, the dwarves are weird in the lore. It's like, yeah, they're... they're they're just a weird, they have a weird status. Yeah, so it's, yeah, and this is getting back into like the theology of the Lord of the Rings. But yeah, there's this whole thing where elves and humans are kind of special because they were both planned by that deity, Eru Iluvatar. They both, you know, are created on purpose, you know, as to be part of this creation of Middle Earth. And the distinction between them is elves are tied to Middle-earth directly. That's why they're more in tune with nature and why they're immortal. Like they, they can't, they, they, don't, they don't die as long as they're on Middle-earth. And humans are kind of special in that they're, they, they are part of Middle-earth, but they're separate from it. And that's why humans die, but that's why their souls go somewhere else after they die, which sets up a whole interesting thing like in the lore where I, I remember reading in the Middle-earth world, like the there was always this weird thing between humans and elves because the humans were always so envious of elves, like you live forever. And the elves were, uh, the, the elf feeling was always, you know, yeah, we live forever, but our existence is tied to Middle-earth and we know Middle-earth is going to end one day. We know there's going to be an end of the world. We don't know if our souls will go somewhere else after we after that ends or if we just disappear and cease to exist along with Middle Earth. So the elves are like, you humans, you have like a, you have a, an escape raft off this sinking ship. Why are you, what are you complaining about? Like we will live forever here, but then we might disappear. The you humans, you're going to die and then your soul goes somewhere and lives forever. We're the ones that are screwed, but the, the dwarves fit like in a weird way in this because they're created by one of those like demigod angel characters he just, who just on his own is like, I'm just going to create my own thing. I'm going to make them out of, out of rock and they're going to be little short, stubborn things. Right, because he was the deity of like masonry or like... Right. Or gem cutting, whatever it was. Right, right. Which is one of the reasons why the dwarves are so into all of that, like mining and crafting it, and all of that. Exact, exactly. And then I guess they're, they're made well enough that, you know, this deity says, okay, yes, they're allowed to exist and they can have, I guess, souls and so on. 
But then the dwarves kind of get the worst of both worlds because they end up being tied to Middle-earth like the elves are. So they don't know what's going to happen to them when Middle-earth ends. But also, they don't live forever on Middle-earth like the elves do. So they kind of get screwed both ways. Yeah, they just... Yeah, I feel like they just, we just kind of, like, stick them under the staircase. They, like, stick them into the mountains. Like, just just get in there. Don't come out. We'll let you know if we want some gems. <laughs> but just, just stay in your mountains. <laughs> we'll, we'll let you... All right. I guess Gimli can come. All right. <laughs> Everybody likes Gimli. I mean, he's he's a. I mean, I always thought you like who who's your favorite character. I thought always thought you liked Gimli. I feel like you always end up playing a dwarf when like during D and D stuff too. I feel like you like the dwarves. Oh, I I do like the dwarves. Don't get me wrong. I love the dwarves. I just accept what they are. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite character was always Barmer. Really, that's an interesting choice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I just like the idea of the strong like does his duty to his family. His country all that stuff and i just appreciate the internal struggle and how it showed he, he was his human nature in the sense that it did overtake him but there was still time to redeem himself at the very end mm-hmm. where that's fair he gets a great death scene yeah he lets the temptation overcome him temporarily but at the very very end uh, he dies protecting well he isn't able to actually protect them but well trying to protect trying them. to protect them he redeems himself in my eyes. No, that's fair. That's a good choice. Yeah, I know. He's, he, I will say, yeah, yeah, listening to that description, I mean, it reminds me that he is the most real character. Like, so many of the other characters, not, not to criticize Tolkien or the writing or anything, and they're all great characters, but so many of them are so noble that they, they don't feel real anymore. Like, Aragorn always makes the right decision. He struggles sometimes, but he always makes the right decision. He always does the good, noble thing. Gandalf is practically a Mary Sue. He always knows exactly what's going on. He always knows how to fix things. He shows up at just the right moment and gets the good lines. The hobbits are all weak, but they're all noble, smart, kind little creatures. Baromir is the only one that seems to have real flaws. And and they're flaws that grow from his character in a way that makes sense. He's the most characterized. Right, he's just gritty. It's the character that I could most relate to and even if i like the dwarves gimli was just oh i'm coming down from the mountain and i hate everyone and i'm just gonna smash smash with my axe legolas i'm not even gonna get into, into legolas I think Le- legolas is the, the, the elves in general are obnoxious i think even tolkien acknowledged that once tolkien in in some later piece of writing in a letter or an interview or something said like basically acknowledged like yeah the elves are kind of assholes they're reactionary and they don't they just don't want to get involved in anybody else's business. They don't want to deal with the problems of the world. They just kind of want to sit by the by themselves and be kind of arrogant and think very highly of themselves. Everybody acknowledges the elves are kind of jerks. Oh, 100%. And I think Aragorn spent way too much time with the elves. But he does that pretentious thing that he pretends like he's not, doesn't think too highly of himself. Just, oh, I'm a lonely ranger and we need to do what's right. And, oh, I'm struggling. And, oh, the internal conflict. Oh, whoop a bup a bup a bup But at the end of the day, we all know Aragorn. You know, we all know what you're going to do. We all know <laughs> what you're about. We all know what you're thinking. Who are you trying to fool? Yeah. At least Boromir's gritty. He's real. He's like, I've been slugging it out for years. We're everyone dying around yeah. me. I've been trying to just hold on to this hole-in-the-wall rubble that's laying next to a creek. Because... <laughs> My dad tells me to. I'm tired. I just want a way out. This rings my way out. That's 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 fair. Actually, it it makes me think. Oh, Aragorn was Aragorn was a politician. 
he was he, he was he was born he was born into privilege his, he's born from royalty he comes from this whole dynasty he has this legacy everybody knows he's going to end up taking the throne one day but he still walks around oh, i'm just a i'm just a humble ranger who came from poor beginnings he's a he's a politician oh my god at the council in rivendell that's the first moment i knew i hated aragorn just as soon as Boromir is trying to tell everyone how much help he needs and how much pain him and his people are in, Aragorn tries to say something a little pompous and witty. Boromir, what does a ranger know? Because you know what? What does a ranger know? He's some gnome named but guy that's just sitting in the corner. Who is he? I don't know. I've never heard of him. And all of a sudden, Legolas pops up out of nowhere. Oh, you owe him your allegiance. Well, that's cool. Apparently the elves are clued in on that information, but humanity, <laughs> the guy, the people he's actually ruling, have no idea where he's been. He's been MIA for the past 12 years. One asshole was responsible for distributing name tags at this thing. Why yeah. didn't I know who this guy is? Yeah, seriously. And also, the way Aragorn reacts, not even like a, yeah, it's me, sorry. No tail between his legs. No, oh crap, I'm found out. Yeah, I've abandoned my post my entire life. Just, havada legolas. Get your elvish out of here. How about this? You suck it up, admit that you were a dick, and just hear Baramira. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Strider. It really does seem like they, they are all really unfair to Baramir, and I think I think they do this more in the movies than the books. I think the books are a bit more fair, although it's been a while since I read them. But I think the books are more fair, but the movies definitely, I think, because they have less time to set all this up, you know, and they have to foreshadow that Barmir is going to go bad, so they have to do everything they can to make sure that's foreshadowed and those seeds are planted early. But they, they really are unfair to him. Like, this whole council gets together, and he's the only representative of the faction that really has suffered up to this point. The El Rivendell is safe, you know, and they'll talk about, oh, we've already seen Sauron's agents in these lands. Well, you've seen... One or two black riders, you you know, there's there's scary stuff going on, not to downplay it. But, you know, you, you guys don't have an army besieging you. Like, you guys are still safe. Baromir's the only representative of the faction that's really suffered serious losses. And it is, like Baromir says, like, the only ones keeping you guys safe. Like, delaying Sauron long enough for you guys to have these councils and figure stuff out. And they really don't hear him out, and they kind of treat him like a rube. Like because he doesn't because he, he doesn't know Elvish and know all this history of all the other these other things going on and so you don't know what you're talking about you're just some dude from the east give, give them give the man some credit and acknowledge he doesn't he has no reason to know all the weird shit you know he doesn't have that education you elitist asses yeah exactly and honestly if it wasn't for Barmer I think that the hobbits would have died. At least Merry and Pippin would have died in the first encounter if it wasn't for Baromir. Because while everyone else was bickering and arguing, oh, do we go around the mountains? Do we go through the mountains? Aragorn's just sitting there posing like some emo girl going through puberty, just staring off into the sunset. Oh, what was me and my bloodline? Baromir's actually here practicing swordplay with the hobbits, making sure that they know what they're doing <laughs> with the blade in their hands for when it hits the fan. Fair. So you know what? I'm going to say this. Baromir saves the day. All right, you've, con you've convinced me. Baromir gets a, gets a, a un unfair treatment in general. Yeah. Especially in the movies. I think the books is a little bit better, but in the movies, certainly. With that final digression, I think we've exhausted the subject. Have we covered, have we covered pretty much everything? I think we've looked at this every way we can. Well, there are a couple more pieces, I feel like. Let's, let's turn the table, Steve. Let me ask you the questions. Yeah. If you could assign the countries of France and Italy because we haven't talked about Italy yet yeah who would who would you 
We'll sign those two countries too. See, I feel like I'm, I'm going to have to like, you know, like pull out a deep cut or something from this and say Italy has to be the Easterlings. The Easterlings it has to the be elephants. Yeah, it has to be like them or something. It has to be one of those random other powers that ends up kind of just, you know, largely answering to, to Sauron. I feel like that has to be, that, that has to be Italy. Again, I still like the idea of making Saruman and his forces Italy because Saruman kind of goes out like Mussolini, but it doesn't fit any other way. So it has to be like the Easterlings are Italy in France. I don't know, like I, I can, I can make, you can make the case it's sort of Rohan before Theoden gets kind of saved because they are kind of a, become a puppet regime, but then that mess, then Saruman has to be Germany and that screws things up. So France, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe your Hobbit thing works. I think uh, I'm still on the dwarves too. Who would the dwarves be? Oh yeah, the dwarves. Are the dwarves like Sweden or some or something? Switzerland? I mean, they were never really taken over, were they? No. And they still fought, so you really And they weren't neutral. Canada? Because, I mean, they still they, send they, people they over have, there, they, they, they packed a punch. They really, don't, like... they really don't have any ties to Gondor, though. And you want a UK-Canada connection. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I feel like the dwarves don't fit. Finland? Yeah. I don't know. I just threw out a <laughs> you're just, you're just You're just naming European countries now. <laughs> uh, Madagascar. <laughs> Norway. Chad. <laughs> yeah, the dwarves don't the dwarves don't fit. And you know what the elves don't fit either. Well the elves are sort of sort of Switzerland. They they, they try to be neutral. Sort That's of right. dicks. Well the elves I mean, who are just some countries that they were involved but they weren't involved? You throw Ireland in there. They're they're neutral during the war, but they're definitely not like on the side of the axis. You know, you could say Ireland because Ireland, Ireland was very vol- it was all volunteer based. Mm-hmm. So they were out of it, but you still had some elves that went over Battle of Helm's Deep. There was that contingency yeah, maybe, that came over. Maybe that works, yeah. So, I mean, you could say that it, it, it goes and it plays into, like, elves and fairies and that whole, like, leprechaun yeah, yeah, yeah. deal. They're all about green and nature. and Yeah. Yeah, that works. Yeah, sure. <laughs> all right, yeah, let's, just, yeah, well, let's, let's do that. Yeah. All right. Uh, For the sake of completing this jigsaw, why not? Yeah. So I think that covers it then. I don't think we have solid answers, but I think we're leaning towards the Gondor UK, US, and Rohan, Soviet Union thing. That seems like the... It works better than anything Interchangeable, else. Interchangeable, but... Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think that covers it. Any other thoughts or are we good to break? Uh, no, no. No other thoughts? All right. I think that covers it then. Adam, thank you so much for joining me. Hope you'll come back again sometime. Welcome anytime. Oh, thank you. I'd love to be back. It was a, it was a blast. Awesome. Thank you very much. Bye, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>